And so because of that, that if you are objectively shamed and you experience it, you recognize it, you recognize that it is valid, that it is right, and then turn towards God for and for repentance and leading on to contrition, then that kind of experience of shame, it's good. It's watering time, everybody! It's time for Apollo's Watered! A podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our... Deep Conversations. Shame is an increasing part of Western culture. That's why we have dedicated several episodes to the subject. Whether it be Jackson Wu, Jason Georges, Audrey Frank, Nick Ripkin, Jim Wilder, just to name a few. One of the big reasons we have focused on shame is because a huge chunk of the world operates from a framework of honor and shame, and it's making a huge surge in our contemporary Western culture today. Here's the good news, though. That way of looking at the world is much closer to the world of the Bible than the way that we look at the world in the modern West. So, understanding it actually helps us understand not only the world we live in, but the world of the Bible, too. Usually, when we think of shame, it's in pretty negative terms. It's bad, right? We think of fat shaming or ableist shaming or terms like transphobic or homophobic or whatever term you want to put a phobia to. We look down on people who actually shame others, ironically shaming them in the process. But in several of the conversations that I just mentioned, we highlighted some of the very negative aspects of shame. But here's the deal. What if shame isn't all bad? What if it can actually be good? Today is the first part of a two-part conversation with New Testament scholar and author Tay Lee Lau and his new book, Defending Shame. I know, even the title makes you stop and say, huh, defending shame? Wait, shame, shame is bad. It is a provocative title and idea, especially if you have never thought about shame in this way, or if you find yourself immediately having a negative reaction to the idea, I would invite you to join us because I think you might be surprised. If God has used any of our episodes to help you water your world better, then become one of our watering partners. Your gift enables others to be equipped to water their worlds better. As one of our listeners said, I so appreciate this podcast. It's helping me grow in my relationship with Jesus and raise my daughter better. Thank you so much. I love that. If you want to help listeners like that, then become one of our watering partners. Lives are being changed because of people like you. Go to apolloswatered.org, click the Support Us button, and then select the amount that works for you. Whether it's a monthly watering gift or a one-time gift, we're grateful that you have chosen to water your world with us. Now, on to Taylor Lau and Defending Shame. Happy listening. Taylor Lau, welcome to Apollo Watered. Well, glad to be here, Travis. <laughs> Are you ready for the Fast Five? Well, I'll be as ready as can be, so go on. Okay, here we go. First question, Mac or PC? PC. Why? The PC used to be in the past to be highly customizable. And besides, you know, that I worked in the computer industry before I ever came to political studies, so I still like the PC because I can mess with the guts of it. <laughs> okay, here's the second question. You're in the Chicago, you're in Chicagoland, and right. Chicagoland is known for its horrible traffic. So, expressway or back roads? Well, back roads, because I don't really go down to the Chicago uh, downtown that much. I try to stay in the suburbs, and uh, I hate going downtown. I hate, uh, I hate traffic. <laughs> I do, too. Um, but it's a necessary evil. Number That's three, right. 
the thing you love most about Chicagoland and the least? Ooh, I think that the thing I like most about it is that there's lots of ponds here, you know, that, and that's one of the things that I appreciate that there's so many waters and so many ponds about it. The worst thing I hate about it is probably the weather. Uh, the cold winters, it just kind of drag on. I'm originally from Singapore. Oh. So coming from Singapore to the from the tropics to the Midwest and the cold Chicago winters, it was just a great transition for me. And you're following the Lord in order to do following it. Following the Lord where he leads, you know, even though it's to Chicago. <laughs> um, and what's the, so, okay, so you loved the the ponds. They're, describe that. I mean, the pond, like water areas? Yeah, or? the water, there's lots of water around here, you know, that that's, uh, we are close to Lake Michigan, you know, that. So I, I just kind of like the woods and the, mm. the lots of ponds here. And it's just, it's just kind of a calming effect. It is, especially up where you're at. There's Chain of Lakes is not far from there. That's right. That is gorgeous. That's right. Uh-huh. Gorgeous, gorgeous. All right, here we go. Number four, being from Singapore and then coming to the United States, you've had undoubtedly several different cross-cultural experiences where either you didn't understand them, they didn't understand you. What is your funniest or strangest cross-cultural experience? One of the things, you know, in Singapore, we really speak, we speak English. Uh, we're British taught, you know, that. But we have a particular way of speaking English called Singlish. So when I, Singlish. So when I was at uh, in college, you know, that, and I was talking to two of my friends, you know, that we are speaking in English. And then one American uh, classmate asked us, what language were you speaking? And we were just flabbergasted because we were speaking in English, but we are speaking in Singlish so that he totally didn't understand uh, what we were saying. And so that was actually quite a quite an amusing thing. There are so many different forms of English that I don't think people realize. So yeah. Singlish. So you're just, is it like, is it comparable to Spanglish where you have Spanish words interspersed into it? That's is right. it similar? So we have a lot of Malay loan words or Chinese loan words that's mixed in t- into uh, English. And our accent is also actually quite difficult to, mm. sometimes it's a little bit difficult for our, for native speakers here of American native speakers to kind of, uh, kind of comprehend and try to understand. Is it hard for Singlish speakers to understand American English speakers? Not that difficult because we are so used to listening to it on media itself, you know, the, in a movie. So we're kind of very much uh, attuned to it. Okay. That's interesting. Number number five, here we go. You're talking about movies. Mm-hmm. So if you were a streaming service, what streaming service would you be and why? Oh, uh, I think the streaming service would be Disney Plus right now. <laughs> uh, it is the go-to because, you know, it has a Star Wars franchise in it too. It has a Marvel franchise in it too. It has the Disney Pixar movies. And so, uh, in fact, we were just down in Disney World uh, about a couple of weeks ago. So, and we went there primarily because my daughter, you know, that she is a big Star Wars fan. And so we wanted to go there to Disney World. So we also had a chance to ride Galaxy's Itch, Itch hmm. which just came out in Disney World. So... So does your daughter, does she like the new stuff? Does she like Mandalorian or Obi-Wan? Yeah, she loves that stuff, Mandalorian. In fact, we are watching Obi-Wan right now. So we're waiting for the next episode to come out on Wednesday. Oh, those are those are good. How many kids do you have? I have two. Uh, one of it is a stepdaughter, but the other one, it's my own daughter. So I have two okay. kids. Okay, wonderful. And how old are they? They are both eight. Uh, one's 17, one's 18. So one's a going... It one's going into college, and the other one will be a senior next year, senior in high school next year. Now, with your kids, is your or where's your wife from? Is she from Singapore or where's she from? Uh, my wife is actually from Antioch, Illinois. She's Caucasian. Really? She's what? She's Caucasian and she's oh. from Illinois. So when so when I was a youth pastor, we used to the um, in Chicago we had all the different ethnicities that would that would marry from different cultural backgrounds. So we would come up with funny names. Like we have one guy who was half Pakistani, half Filipino. Uh-huh. So he was a Pakapino. Uh-huh. Um, and, and is there a name Singaporean and what do you call it? Uh, an America poor. <laughs> no, I, I don't think we have, I don't think we have that creative to come up with such terms like that. So 
<laughs> we would do it. I mean, our group was so close because it was so many different nations and and everybody right. came from someplace. We all did. Yeah. And so we would have a lot of fun and 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 we just loved each other for that. Yeah. But but um Antioch, I know I know the area very, very well. Mm-hmm. And uh, having I, I pastored up there for a little bit. And that's why I was excited to see your book, uh, Defending Shame. And we're going to talk about that in a bit. But let's hear your story. See, you're from Singapore. You come to the United States. You end up marrying a woman from Antioch, Illinois. Uh What would bring a person from beautiful Singapore, which is one of the the pearls of the the whole entire world right now? It's everybody wants to go to Singapore, to Deerfield. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So what is the Taili Lau story? Well, I actually uh, grew up in Singapore. I was I went there for high school, you know that. And I initially wanted to do medical school. And in Singapore, you go to medical school straight after high school. But I wasn't admitted to medical school, so I wanted to do engineering. And I thought I really wanted to do engineering in the United States. So I ended up, uh, first I went to Northwestern, and then I transferred over to Stanford. And then California, and then after graduating with a bachelor's degree, I went on to work in Silicon Valley, and I did that for about 10 years. So I worked in Silicon Valley for about 10 years designing computer chips. Uh, I worked for this company called Silicon Graphics, which was one of the most fun companies to work for. And uh, it was great. You know, we had uh, we had kind of lots of, great parties, great lavish, so that whenever we had a Christmas kind of a thing, you know, that we would rent out the entire San Jose arena, and then we would have Patti LaBelle come and sing for us. There was once a company went down to San Francisco and rented out the entire Fairmont Hotel, and then, you know, uh, we had Natalie Cole come and sing for us too, so it was kind of a, it was a kind of a fun place to be in, and I think it was a fun place for when I was in my 20s, being single, you know, that, wow, this is great. And the company that I worked for was uh, designing high-end computer workstation graphics that were primarily used in the movie industry. So whenever a movie came out that used a computer hardware, Jurassic Park, Terminator 2, Congo, Twister, the company would just shut down and then we would go to the movies and then watch the movies. So it was, it was, kind, of a, uh, it was kind of a fun lifestyle, I would say. You know? So there's someone who was in the 20s was just giddy with all this uh, thing. And this was, of course, before the dot-com bus you know, yeah. happened. So everybody was just wanting to join startup companies and wanting to be employee number five, you know, that so that they would get stock options so that whenever there was the IPO initial public offering, you know, they become instant millionaires straight away. So that was the dream of uh, Silicon Valley, actually, what it offered in the early 90s. And then what made the transition? Because that sounds like a ton of fun. Uh, to go from that to New Testament, what, uh, what what precipitated that? There was lots of events that led to that. One of it was uh, my uncle passed away. My sister-in-law uh, had acoustic neuroma, so she needed a head surgery, you know that. Mm. And then a good friend of mine from Stanford, around roughly around my age, died of uh, lymphoma, Hodgkin's disease itself. Mm. And so it really asked me to question, what was I really looking for? You know, what was I really looking for? And at that time, the thing thought that really came to me was that I felt that I was really just building up my kingdom. Mm. I felt that I was building up my kingdom. And But then I also was wondering, you know, what was I hoping to get in return? What was my return on investment? And I felt that I really wanted to invest my life in something that was a little bit more meaningful than that, you know, that, uh, because, you know, I was working in the computer industry uh, and it takes about four years to design a computer system. Four years from beginning to uh, production itself. And once the computer comes out, it comes out with great fanfare, you know, that that's great hoopla, you know, that. But after two years, uh, the computer needs an upgrade. And after four years, you know, it's time for the dumpster. And I just thought to myself, do I really want to spend so much time, you know, for something that had such a short shelf life? Mm. And so I really wanted to invest my life in something that had a greater return on investment. So I was struggling with these issues in the in the early 90s, you know, that. 
and uh, mid-90s. And then there are certain movies that came out that kind of spoke to me. I'm, I'm kind of a movie guy, you know that. And uh, one of it, one of the movies that came out around that time was uh, Braveheart. Mm. You remember Braveheart, you know, William Wallace, he's in the dungeons, right? Yeah. And he's talking to the princess. And then in the conversation, you know, William Wallace uh, basically asked the princess or said to the princess that all men die, but not all men live. Meaning that not all men live up to the full potential of what they were capable of. You know, that at the same time, uh, there's another movie, uh, Dead Poet Society. And the main mantra is that it's copy diem, right? Which is to seize the day. You know, that. And also at that time, uh, that's also the movie uh, that starred Tom Hanks. You know that? Yeah, and which one? I can't remember the title of it. It just slipped my mind. Uh, what, Forrest what Gump. Was he? Oh, Forrest Gump. Yeah, Forrest yeah. Gump. And what does Ma always say? Come on, Mama? Travis. Yeah, what, ma, what does mama always say? Life is like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. That's right. If <laughs> if you don't really know what you're going to get, you know, how do you how should you live your life then in such a way that maximizes it, that really brings uh, glory to God? So really at that time, all of these things were percolating in the mind, you know, and really one of it was that, what do I want to be remembered for? Mm. If someone was to write an epitaph, you know, that what would... What would it say? Mm. How would um, what would be written on my tombstone? And so one of it was that I really wanted to live my life in a way that I felt that had significance and that made a contribution uh, to the kingdom of God. And so one of the reasons then was that in 98, then I decided to hang out my computer mouse and then head towards, uh, head towards TED to do my uh, degree, my Masters of Divinity. So that was the shift in terms of biblical studies then. So you go to TEDS and then you do your PhD at Emory. And That's what, right. made you, what made you want to pursue New Testament studies? I was, I was always interested in uh, New Testament studies. And so one of it was that I felt that it played to my strength mm. as a someone who is detail-oriented, someone who is logical, you know, that. And so I did finish, after finishing my Masters of Divinity and Masters of Theology at TED, then I went to Emory to do my doctoral studies. And after doing my doctoral studies, then I came back to TED to teach. So kind of a roundabout way, back to my alma mater. Which, (laughs) hearing how you have Braveheart and Dead Poets Society and Forrest Gump, you're a man after my own heart. (laughs) I'm listening to... You know, every man dies. Not every man really lives. <laughs> I'm doing the accent in my head. Because <laughs> I, I can't help myself. And I can even see Robin Williams in the corner going, Carpe, Carpe Diem. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I feel those same impulses. It's amazing the power of film. Just how it film is. can influence okay. in, the, in that. Yeah. Well, hearing your story, then to, to, to now to understand a bit behind the book, it still makes me go, I'm I'm marveling at this. Uh-huh. What made you write defending shame? Uh-huh. To come from the background that you have, um, and we know that shame is really in the the public eye right now. That's We've right. seen a, a resurgence of shame, starting off with Brene Brown's TED Talk, uh-huh. and people have been talking about the 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 how bad shame is. You know, slut shaming, fat shaming, whatever you know, whatever adjective you want to use. You see these thrown around and obviously with social media we've seen a a whole new form of shaming and yet when i see your book you say it's formative power in paul's letters uh so so let's talk about this book how or why did you write this book or feel the need this book that this why do you feel the need that this book needed to be written right i think that one of the the impetus of it was when i began to teach a class on global theology you know that and i was asked to teach uh, a session on shame, because uh, I can't. I come from Asia, and shame cultures are. You could say that they are usually typically found either in the Middle Eastern or in Asia culture, Asian cultures. And so I was asked to teach about shame culture, and so I then began to do a little bit more research in terms of how does this scripture speak about shame. And one of the things is that in a 
from in an Asian culture itself, shame is not necessarily always seen as something that's negative. In fact, it, it's sometimes seen as a positive, it's seen as a virtue itself. So that if you were to go down to Chinatown, you know, Travis, I know you've been to yep. uh, Chicago, Chinatown. right? Yeah, so I've in Chinatown, Chinatown itself, that's a big gate that leads into Chinatown. And on it are written four characters. And four, the four characters are the four cardinal virtues that are very prominent in, uh, in a Chinese culture. And these four cardinal virtues actually predate Confucius. So they are probably even before 500 BC. And one of the cardinal virtues is actually shame, slash, sense of shame slash modesty, because the word for shame, it's, you could say it's multivalent. It has shame, sense of shame, modesty, it's all wrapped into it. And even in Confucian writings, he emphasizes the importance of developing a sense of shame. In fact, Confucius considers to be much more important than filial piety. And we know how important filial piety is in Asian context. But even Confucius considers a uh, sense of shame, you know, shame to be more important than filial piety, more important than being trustworthy. So it is, uh, so given the context here that I recognize that shame has a role to play. And you also read it in scripture, you know, where Paul talks about, he goes around shaming people. First mm-hmm. Corinthians 6, 5, I say this to your shame. First Corinthians 15, 34, I say this to your shame. Second Thessalonians 3, 14, do not eat with him so that he might be ashamed. Mm. And that also in the prophets, you know, that where God shames Israel because of the shameless things they have done. So it seems that even in scripture, there is a role that shame has to play. But yet, uh, yet the American context, the American culture, it's, uh, it's only emphasizing the negative aspects of shame. And I think that there's a big uh, mismatch there. Now, when it comes to Brene Brown's work, you know, I, I, she has done great work. I, I don't want to minimize that. And she has really emphasized on the toxic uh, effects of shame itself. But I think that she probably swings it a little bit too far, you know, that's so that for her, she doesn't think that there's anything positive about shame at all. The thing about that to be good shame, toxic shame, she says that she didn't find that at all in the research. Mm-hmm. But I think that there is a place for shame rightly understood shame rightly understood and how shame can then play a part in forming us so that we understand the values of the kingdom of God much more clearly and that our minds are then transformed into the mind of Christ. And so that's my project is to try to explain what is Paul's understanding of shame and how it might shape us so that we might be more like Christ. We're going to take a quick break and hear a word from our sponsors, and we'll be right back. The most important Bible translation is the one you read. At Apollos Water, we use several different translations when we're studying, preaching, or teaching. But again and again, we keep coming back to the New Living Translation, the NLT. That's why we are excited to partner together. We are united in the belief that understanding the Bible changes everything. Because if you can't understand it, then you won't read it. We want you to know the God of the Bible, to water your faith so that you will water your world. That's why we recommend getting an NLT. It's the Bible in the language we speak. It's not foreign or complicated, but up close and personal. To save some money, go to Tyndale.com. Use the promo code NLTBibles. It will give you 15% off. There's an NLT for everyone, from kids to adults, devotional Bibles, study Bibles, and so much more. Get one today, because understanding the Bible changes everything, and the NLT is the Bible you can understand. In in the book, I, I do find it very interesting how you created the framework. I mean, you even, that's how you subtitled that whole section is creating a framework and you, you cite the the Chinatown. You also cite, which I found very interesting Zeus where Mm. he, he gives the two gifts, the twin gifts of of justice and shame. And 
I never thought of it that way. I, I have to say the idea that these were gifts and in that the bedrocks of a society and how you rooted that within a, the Greco-Roman culture, you've rooted it within an Asian cultural perspective, and then really delving into how they would have understood that biblically. Right. I, I, I find it to be very, very, very interesting and, and encouraging because as you said, I think that the work has gone too far where everything is shame. I mean, nothing uh -huh. is shamed, but we know from experience, that's not the case. That's right. Uh -huh. Even even when we say shame is bad, we start shaming the people who say it's good, mm -hmm. um, and we end up doing it. Um, but I want I want to go back to help our audience really try to grab a hold of what we're talking about here. Let's start with some definitions. I know which most okay. Westerners do, and you mentioned uh -huh. that in the book. But it's always good to have a good definition and a proper working definition, and you work through that. But let's let's start with a definition of honor and mm -hmm. shame. Can you define those for us? Honor is really in terms of a sense of worth, you know, that honor is a claim to a sense of worth. And this claim is then recognized by everybody, recognized by the group. So that is honor. So the opposite of that would be shame, where shame is really seen to be that it's, you have no claim to worth and you are recognized to be of no worth at all. So if you take it, uh, shame, honor and shame as values, all right? then the opposite of shame would be honor. Mm. The one way to understand it, you know, uh, is to say that shame can typically be broken down into two categories, objective shame and, and subjective shame. So objective shame is shame as a value. So like, for example, you are disgraced. So that means that in the eyes of people, you have no honor. So when you, we understand objective shame, the opposite of objective shame would then be honor because we are understanding shame as a value. Mm. But shame, it's also can be understood as an experience. So that's why I call it subjective shame. Okay. And that's why shame is also not just a value itself, but also an emotion. Mm right? It's also an emotions. And so, for example, we say that he feels ashamed or he is ashamed. So that is an experience of the objective uh, state that he is in. So if someone is objectively shamed, he should also feel subjectively shamed. Mm. That means he feels what other people are attributing to him. Mm. But you can have someone who is objectively shamed by a particular community or whatever, but he doesn't experientially feel it. Hmm. So he might be disgraced by the company, by the community itself, but he doesn't experience it. Well, he's just shameless. Mm -hmm. I don't care what people think about me. I do me. You do you, I do I. You know, I do me, the kind of thing. Right. And so that... You could have someone who is objectively shamed, not feeling the shame, not, not experiencing the subjective shame. At the same time, you can have someone who has no objective shame, but yet thinking and experiencing that he is, uh, has shame or he or she has shame. So one of the things that I think the listeners should at least be aware of that shame at least can be divided into these two categories of objective shame and subjective shame. Objective shame is a value, and that's usually contrasted with uh, honor because honor is a value. And then subjective shame is usually an emotion, it's an experience, and that it's no corresponding, really, no corresponding uh, emotion or shame. So let me let me make sure that I understand because I'm trying to understand this also in terms of honor. And and, and if I get my categories wrong, please feel free to correct me. Mm -hmm. But I remember when I was studying honor that there was a difference between achieved honor and attributed honor. Right. Uh -huh. So, um, and I, I remember Jason Georges, who's been on the show, um, uh -huh. ministering in honor, shame cultures. He talks about LeBron James, the athlete, mm -hmm. and meeting Prince William and Princess Kate. Right. And right. they got they got a photo op, and yeah. he put his arms around them, and the British press freaked out because that was something that you're not supposed to do. It's a Royal. They have attributed honor. Well, he though has an achieved honor in, <laughs> in is that type of thing. So we're talking about objective shame and subjective shame. 
I'm thinking of cultures where it, it, I'm trying to use your categories, but I'm also using the categories that I, I already have in my oh, head. Go ahead. So I'm trying to, I'm trying to, trying to understand it. So is it that a shame, a person that's shamed, um, is there, let's say a Dalit in India, they, mm -hmm. they're, they're already objectively and subjectively shamed. That's right. Correct. Correct. By the greater society. Um, so that it sounds to me like there's, you know, there's like, I hate to say it this way, but there's one point shame and two point shame. Mm -hmm. um, there's like one is bad, 1.1 either way. If it's objectively shame, that's one thing. It's objectively shame. That's another thing. But if you get the double, you're in trouble. <laughs> Would that be a wrong assessment? Not necessarily that, you know, uh, I got to put that aside for one. Okay, but sure. getting back to your categories of ascribe and attain, I think that those are good ways of understanding objective shame. Okay. That shame could be, uh, for example, ascribed to you because mm -hmm. of who you are. So, for example, Prince William, even though he's a toddler, you know that he has mm -hmm. a lot of ascribed shame because he is a royal. Oh, Prince, yes, Prince George. Prince George. Prince George. Yeah, yeah. I w I'm with you. I understand. Yeah, with you. Yeah. That's right, Prince George. Whereas like LeBron James, you know, he has, you could say, honor that he has done. So that's attained. He's achieved, shame, achieved, yeah. Right, achieved it or attained it. And so that it's, uh, so that it's, I think, kind of important ways for trying to nuance uh, objective shame. Mm. Now, getting back to your questions, you know, that about double whammy. So if someone who is objectively shamed and also experiencing the shame, is that a double whammy? And mm -hmm. so is that really bad, right? And I think that, no, I don't think it is, not it is not necessarily bad. In fact, it can sometimes be good. Mm. It can sometimes be good in that you are aware of the standards that are placed upon you by an outsider or by society. Now, let's bring this back into scriptural context. All right, Travis. Let's do it. So, in so when Israel sins, God shames them. So God objectively shames them, and they are put into exile. They are made slaves of other nations. Right. So they are objectively shamed. They are disgraced. Instead of being the head, they are now the tail. tail. Instead of having the blessings they now have the curses of the covenant. So they are objectively shamed. But Israel, the prophets keep on complaining that Israel's have no shame, meaning that they, have, they do not experience their shame. Be and because they don't experience their shame, they don't feel that they have done anything wrong. Instead, the prophets are telling the Israel that they should recognize their objective shame, experience it subjectively, which will then lead them towards remorse and re lead them towards repentance. Keep going, keep going. This is good. And so because of that, that if you are objectively shamed and you experience it, you recognize it, you recognize that it is valid, that it is right, and then turn towards God for, for repentance and leading on to contrition, then that kind of experience of shame, it's good. It's good. It's so, good. And that's leading you towards repentance, leading you towards uh, asking God for forgiveness. So let me let me make sure I get all this right, because um, that makes that makes a lot of sense to me. If if a person like the Dalits, we'll go back to them, for example, the, the right. not even on the, the caste system in India, uh -huh. they they've been objectively shamed and shamed and they feel subjectively shamed that's right. which is why dalits are coming to christ in droves that's right that's because right because of that whereas brahmins which are the highest class right they might be um neither really uh -huh. because societally they're they're at the top of the food that's chain right. if you will uh -huh. and there's no need for it so therefore if they don't feel that need they won't be drawn to the gospel correct right right okay so let me ask you another question looking at our contemporary society you mentioned how the israelites uh 
we're not feeling that subjective shame. Uh-huh. They've 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 felt that objective shame. God has given the objective shame. And we know biblically, yes, we've all fallen short of the glory of God. But yet, like Israel, as a society, we have forgotten how to blush. We have right. this within our culture right now. You mentioned movies. We see all these different starlets that are just flaunting, uh, you know, actors, um, men and women, uh, athletes, musicians, pick whoever you want to pick. And they are trumpeting things that obviously that God has decreed to be wrong. Mm-hmm. In a majority Christendom culture, I call it the high Christendom culture, where the Christians are the majority, they set the standard for objective shame, let's say, societally. They acted as the moral conscience. But the church has largely lost that or is in the process of losing that. And that's debatable. But um, the, the society is now eschewed that. They don't, they reject that. And they're, offering an alternative shame objective mm-hmm. where now we are the shamed and we we feel so from an objective standpoint but not necessarily subjectively uh-huh. how do we then flip that that's right <laughs> you know one of the things is that honor and shame are present in any kind of uh, context but what is really important are the values that determine what it's shameful and what it's honorable. Mm-hmm. It is the values that really determine uh, what is, or rather what's the criteria for shame or what's the criteria for honor. And we need to get that absolutely right. And so people really talk about how there are two different courts of, of opinion. Mm-hmm. One of it is the human court of opinion or the world's court of opinion. The other one, it's the divine court of opinion. How mm-hmm. does God look at it? All right. So, for example, like the Dalits feel the shame for it, and that is the world's court of, of opinion. The, the world's court of opinion or the Indian's uh, caste system's mm-hmm. court of opinion really deems that Dalits are of no worth at all. But in the eyes of God, in the eyes of God, they are of immense worth. And so that if they repent of their sin, you know, that and come towards God, they are given so much more honor because they are now called sons of God, daughters of God, children of God. So the honor that they had never was able to attain within the Indian or Hindu caste system, it's now flipped around and that now they are capable of attaining honor that Mm -hmm. it's only possible because they are aligned with the God of the universe. So trying to understand the, the courts of opinion is very important, not Mm. only for the Dalits, but also for us here. And that really, whose court of opinion is the one that is most important? It is God's court of opinion is the one that's most important because God is the one that's the ultimate giver of honor because every honor belongs to God. So if every honor belongs to God, then honor is truly God's prerogative to give Mm -hmm. to whomever he deems fit, not the world not society itself. And so one of the things then really is for the church to how can we inculcate within the members, within our members of the church, the values of the divine court of opinion, God's Mm. value for what is truly honorable, what is truly shameful, and that we need to, to educate, to train, and so that our minds are now shaped according to the minds of Christ, when I say a mind, it's not just only in terms of ability to think, but our worldview, our belief structure, the moral apparatus, it all needs to be shaped according to the mind of Christ, according to how Christ sees it, according to the values of the kingdom of God. So I think that this is one of the main tasks, I think, that pastors, you know, Christian educators here, and even in terms of uh, instructing our own children within the family, that they have to consider that God's honor is paramount. God is the one who is able to give the honor and that we should seek honor from God rather than from the world. And let me make sure that I, again, understand you. Um, because I, I think what you're saying is extremely important going forward. You're saying then that the the way that we really understand honor is we have to understand the word of God and what God says about honor, which goes back to teaching and making sure we understand that. Right. Continue to teach our people to reject the, the world's idea of honor. 
mm-hmm. and make sure they adopt a biblical definition and understanding of honor, as well as a biblical and um, uh, a biblical definition of shame at the same time, because right. both are essential in going forward. That's correct? right. Let me let me give you an example. All right. Sure. Now, within an Asian context, if you are an engineer, if you are a lawyer, you know, uh, if you are a manager, investment analyst, great honor. If you drive a BMW, great honor, you know that. But does God view this as truly honorable? Mm. What does God honor? God honors those who love him. God honors those who obey him. God honors those who trust him. And so you can see that the values of honor, you know, what the world values as honor, what the Asian context views as honor, like education, like finances, it's totally uh, not what God considers to be honorable. Mm. What does God consider to be honorable is really now defined by the cross. Mm. It's really now defined by the cross. And the cross was typically a symbol of shame because Mm -hmm. the it was really the scumbags that were crucified, mm-hmm. but that God flips that around so that what the world now considers, what the world considers dishonorable in the cross is now considered the means of attaining honor. And that we cannot attain honor on our own and that our honor is only can only be attained through the cross and through Christ itself. And it's available to all. And that is the beauty of the gospel. Isn't that similar? I mean, it is different in that we're talking about, and we're going to get really technical here, the difference between um, Im, uh, imputed righteousness right. and infused righteousness. It, we would say, because Catholics have a, a view of infused righteousness, you uh-huh. earn it, whereas Protestants see it as imparted. We we receive what Christ has achieved by no right. merit of our own. Uh-huh. So you're saying in an honor-shame kind of idea, we're taking this, we're the honor that Christ has achieved by the cross, we then don't achieve, it's ascribed to us by faith. That's right. It is ascribed to us by faith. But at the same time, you know, through the process of sanctification, we are to live honorable lives. We are to live honorable lives. Basically, that our conduct must fit our identity. Mm. And that's why we're in some capacity in the at least the North American context are suffering because our conduct has not been that's right matching and we have lost the moral high ground and the definition of what honorable is because Mm -hmm. we've acted in a dishonorable manner knowing that should we try to recapture that or do we and maybe this is a greater conversation because if we can't recapture recapture the moral high ground, let's say, the, the definitions of what is shameful and what is not. I mean, we have that in the church, that's for sure. But how do we then evangelize when the world is largely said, you have lost the ability to speak on these things because of past behavior? Mm-hmm. How do we recover a biblical notion I mean, and I know it's in the church per se, but part of proclaiming the gospel is help people to see they're in a shameful state and they need the righteousness or honor of Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we go about that? It mm-hmm. seems it's it's very convoluted and confusing. You know, if it regards to outsiders itself, you know, that uh, Paul doesn't really tell us to shame outsiders mm-hmm. directly. Paul doesn't tell us to sh- even in First Corinthians, Paul doesn't tell us to judge outsiders mm-hmm. directly. And but with with regards to outsiders, Paul tells us, you know, to do good to them, so that by doing good, we may what heap coals, burn, burning coals on the head. head. And the language of burning coals is usually understood that we would put we would shame them indirectly, in that when they see us uh, reacting with good to their evil, they are then put to shame because of our good works. And so that we shame them indirectly rather than directly. So it's the the whole aspect of Romans where it's his loving kindness that leads us to repentance. We're being loving kind to the world. That's right. Um, but that's a long game. I mean, that's the that definite- is a long game. 
that's the that's the definite long game uh-huh. because i think we've adopted at least traditionally in contemporary i don't want to say contemporary mid 20th century approaches to evangelism whether it's like the four spiritual laws this this idea of violating a moral code um and you're saying okay while we can't take that directly we can still give the the objective truth of who god is right right. but we don't try to force shame upon them Mm -hmm. but we are kind and loving but how how do we, I, I suppose my question is, is that I can be kind to a person, but that person may not see my proclamation of the gospel and Absolutely. as a, a shameful, I mean, they might, yeah, I think you know what I'm trying to, to ask. And, and so there is that in the proclamation of the gospel that it cannot just be in conduct alone, but there must also be words because the, the language of Keruso, Yongelitso, it's always verbal, it's always word-based and that we in our proclamation of the gospel, we are then to, to tell people of their sin mm. and in terms of how they have dishonored God. Mm. So like Romans 1 to 2, you know, that what is sin, but sin is dishonoring God and not giving thanks to God. And mm. so to, to, in terms of our gospel message is that to recognize that, there it's, uh, that people have dishonored God, but yet at the same time to recognize that because of their dishonored of God, they are shamed by God, but they can't invert their shame and attain honor. Mm. And so I don't think that uh, we would shame them for their conduct directly as in terms of a social level. Ah, got it. In terms of a social level, but to say that their conduct has really dishonored and has shamed God. That's good. The The hard part is, is that I think that doesn't always play out that way. Like, yeah. I, I think of being in it. I mean, we've both been in churches where everyone kind of looks the moral part mm-hmm. and you have someone, let's say someone dressed in drag comes yeah. into the church, at least used to, I think that, that it's changing, but that is noticeably a violation of a social norm mm-hmm. in that context. The automatic I would say past reaction of people, get them out, make, give them dirty looks, you know, to 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 shame them in essence into fall, conforming to our behavior mm-hmm. that is that is socially acceptable. You're saying let's not try to do that because they're not a brother mm-hmm. yet; they don't uh-huh. know who Jesus is. That's right. But we're to love them and let God be the one that brings that truth of His mm-hmm. love. Mm-hmm. but also how they have fallen short. And we don't need to be the ones. We need to love them and embrace them where they're at. I think we want to bring them into an encounter with God. Yes. Into an encounter with God, encounter with God in terms of all his uh, fullness, you know, encounter with God's love, encounter with God's holiness, encounter with God's justice, you know, that. And basically let the Holy Spirit work in that person rather than shaming them into adopting the same kind of uh, conduct, which are sometimes much more social rather than moral or rather than what God intends. I think that that would be the the danger where we are just trying to get people to adopt the same kind of social conduct that we do expect. So it's like an outward morality without the heart. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it's they're performing it and they're not they're not living it. It's not really a yeah. change. Like and, we're and about the, the, the things that, you know, when Paul actually speaks difficult things and he shames, uh, shames his uh, church. All right. It's not as though he it suddenly happens out of the blue. There are incremental steps. Paul always talks about speaking gently with them. You know that Paul is like, always says, should I come with you with a heart of love or with a big stick? You know, in First mm-hmm. Corinthians, you know that. And for Paul, Paul's preference is always to use gentle words. Then, and when the gentle words are resisted, then he ratchets up the, Rhetoric. you could say, the level. Very much like Matthew eighteen, you know that. <clears throat> yeah. Where that happens, but even then, you know that when Paul is bringing out the big guns and ultimately shaming them, it is out of a heart that is pained. It is a heart out of a heart that is filled with empathy. It is not vindictive. Mm -hmm. It is not punitive itself. It is meant to be redemptive. 
it is meant to be restorative. It is meant to restore the, I think, the sinning brother and sister into, into community, into right relationship with God and right relationship with the community. So I think that it's all done, I think, uh, with much thought, with much prayer, with much dependence on the power of the Holy Spirit, because it's the power of the Holy Spirit that convicts people of their sin. It is never done cavalierly. It is done with much tears. You see it in terms of 2 Corinthians, you know, where Paul is on the verge of tears when he talks about the painful letter that he has to write. And he's so afraid that the Corinthians will not accept the painful letter, you know. Mm. And so for us too, that when we do discipline and when we do, I think, uh, do this shaming kind of rebuke thing, that it must really be done by people who truly love the offender. I so appreciated this first part of the conversation with Tay Lee Lau. His background coming from Singapore as an ethnic Chinese person, his engineering background and serious New Testament scholarship have led him to explore and see things that many Westerners, myself included, probably wouldn't have seen in the Bible. This is a gift. Our mission at Apollos Watered is the renewal of the church. It is offering life-giving water so that the church can be the church in our rapidly changing world. Sometimes we need to have someone from outside of our conceptual frameworks speak to us so that we can see the things that are right in front of us that we have become so used to that we are effectively blind. Tay Lee Lau's exploration of shame helps us do just that. His reminder that scripture gives a real positive role for shame. That when we understand shame properly, when we look at it rightly, it can help our minds to be formed by kingdom values. It can be a catalyst for transforming our minds into the mind of Christ. Join us next time as we continue looking at the positive aspects of shame, about God's honor and how Paul uses shame. What does it mean for the church to develop a proper sense of shame? All of that and more next week. So make sure you tune in for part two. And I want to thank our Apollos Water team of Kevin, Melissa, Eliana, and Rebecca. We want to say thanks to two members of our team until we meet again, Donovan and Audrey. Donovan is a young father and will be spending more time with his ever-growing family. And Audrey is off to school for a full semester. Thank you both. Today's episode is brought to you in part by FCC Cabinets of Jacksonville, Florida. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollo's Water. Stay watered, everybody. <laughs> <laughs>